astrophysics and English at Oxford. She uses data from a cross-sensory project called Shakespeare's Ward in MPA research. Her monograph, Convent Autobiography, Early Modern English Nouns in Exile, develops from a doctoral work undertaken at the University of Sheffield and is forthcoming with OOP. Today, she will present a paper entitled Subsumed Autobiography, English Convent Self-Writing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. After the dissolution of the monasteries in England, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland in the 1530s, and the fast multiplying restrictions on Catholic practice that followed, women wanting to join a convent needed to travel abroad to do so. At first, they joined Spanish, Flemish, French, and other continental convents, but by the end of the 16th century, the first English convent was founded in exile. Between the dissolution and the French Revolution, which is known as the exile period, 22 new houses were founded on the continent and in the New World and attracted nearly 4,000 women. Um, this is the Who Are the Nuns database, uh, which was uh, made at uh, Queen Mary University, and it has details about these women who went into exile um, and very robust family histories that places them in their uh, context with their families, um, and that's an image of them, um, the Mary Ward sisters, making their way overseas. Um, today I'll be speaking about literature produced at the English Augustinian Convent of St. Monica's, which was founded in Leuven in 1609, and its daughter house founded in Nazareth, uh, sorry, called Nazareth, which was founded in Bruges in 1629. And that's a little watercolor of Nazareth um, before it was expanded to quite a large set of buildings. And when the nuns first moved in, they all slept in one room uh, divided by curtains. And then when they attracted more funding and money, they each got their own cell, their sort of room of their own, as it were. While the early modern period witnessed a flourishing of literary culture marked by the explosion of print in the 17th century, increased rates of literacy, and fast-paced innovation in terms of genre, including the rise of the novel, Nuns were confined to a narrower range of literary expression in terms of genre and narrative voice, and even the use of the first person posed problems. This is not to say that first person expression was banned, but rather that nuns typically deployed humility tropes to pardon their speech, or wrote anonymously, in order to avoid the problem altogether. Witness the discomfort of the 17th century abbess Anne Neville of the English Benedictines in Pontoise when chronicling her election as abbess. And this is a different convent, not the ones that I'm going to be focusing on later today. Um, and I, the most unworthy, was chosen, though I blush and hold this and several other things of this nature improper for me to write. But having begun our annals and finding yet none of ours willing to engage entirely in it, I am constrained to take this mortification upon myself till death easeth them of me, or they shall please to take the trouble from me. Neville's chronicle is peppered with, with this kind of self-abjuration. Had she written anonymously as many of her counterparts at other English convents did, she no doubt would have dispensed with this language. But by writing under her own name and in her apparent desire to conform to the monastic norms of modesty and humility, she consistently diminished herself. It would have been unusual for her not to have done so. Nuns throughout the centuries have been under even more pressure than monks to write anonymously because of the supposed virtue of women's silence, according to Paul in Corinthians 14.34.5. Interpreted within this tradition, anonymity appears stultifying. But seen in another light, anonymous authorship could provide nuns with opportunities for greater autobiographical expression and self-analysis than writing under their own names. Shielded by anonymity, they could safely speak about themselves without recourse to Abbas Neville-like self-opprobrium. Thus, even if monastic female anonymity had its origins in paternalistic prescriptions against women's writing and speech, it could, in the hands of a deft woman writer, be liberating and conducive to self-expression. Two years ago, I published an article on the subject of subsumed autobiography, a subgenre that I delineated to describe writing in which an anonymous author through the very vehicle of her anonymity, shapes a text, such as a chronicle, 
around her own experiences, politics, theology, ideology, etc., to such a degree that the text can be read as an expression and exploration of the author's selfhood, rather than a merely anonymous institutional account of something in her community. While anonymity is crucial to my definition, I'd also like to stress that not all anonymous autobiography is subsumed. The very idea of an anonymous autobiographer challenges Philippe Lejeune's narrow but off-quoted definition of autobiography as a retrospective prose narrative produced by a real person concerning his own existence, focusing on his individual life, in particular on the development of his personality. I know that those of you here tonight will be alive to the gender assumptions and biases inherent in Lejeune's phrasing, and so I won't belabor that point now. Thankfully, Lejeune's definition has been challenged from many quarters already, including through the development of the term self-writing and life-writing, which enable us to consider multi-author texts, non-chronological texts and forms that do not focus on the explication or establishment of a coherent or unified self, but which reveal selves and self-reflection. In Adam Smythe's book, Autobiography in Early Modern England, he argues persuasively for using the terms autobiography life writing and self writing alongside one another precisely in order to complicate the definition of autobiography in the early modern period and to remind us that many forms and genres enable self-expression and he looks at accounts, parish registers and other, other things like that. The recovery of women's voices and authorial strategies within and beyond the early modern period has also of course been vital to the redefinition of autobiography <coughs> and the development of the concept of self writing as an alternative phrase. Michelle Dowd and Julie Eckerl argue that early modern women writers, quote, combine generic elements from traditional forms in new and creative ways in order to produce rhetorically sophisticated discourses of the self. Ramona Ray's work on early modern women's autobiography develops these ideas further. She invites us to seek out autobiographical writing within, quote, seemingly invisible traces as well as more obviously stated presences. The concept of subsumed autobiography that I propose builds on Ray's idea of these invisible traces, as well as the concept of self-betrayal, which was used by the editors of Betraying Ourselves, a collection of essays on early modern self-writing, in which they describe the, quote, many indirect and hidden modes in early modern writing through which an author reveals himself as a means to a personal intellectual or doctrinal end. My work on subsumed autobiography within the contents of St. Monica's and Nazareth focuses on the first anonymous chronicler of each house. I use a range of sources, including manuscript evidence, internal textual evidence, by manuscript evidence I mean physical features of the manuscript, and data from the Who Are the Nuns project database in building each case. There isn't time today to go into um, every single detail um, for each authorial attribution that I'm going to be talking about. So I'll just give an overview and explain how these cases led to my definition of subsumed autobiography. The Chronicles of St. Monica's and Nazareth are significantly different in narrative style and scope, but they share some important similarities. First of all, the original manuscripts do not survive, so it's not possible to use paleographical evidence to identify the first <laughs> authors. These communities are typically small, they might have 40 or 50 women, if you're trying to identify an author, you can use their profession vow, which they write at the day that they join the convent, and then compare that to any other documents sometimes that can help you identify somebody. Um, the second thing that the two texts have in common is that they were begun after the foundation of the relevant convent. So St. Monica's chronicler began her work in 1631, 22 years post-foundation, while Nazareth's chronicler began sometime between 1642 and 1647, which is at least 13 years post-foundation. And I say this on the basis of internal evidence regarding um, events of 1642, etc. Uh, the gap between the foundation and the start of the chronicles raises several questions. Why was this chronicle begun at this particular moment in time? And who might have had the cause, the time, and the ability to start and maintain such a document? There was no formal pressure for the nuns to keep documents of this kind. It was a literary, historical impulse, and often it seems to have been the impulse of an individual, um, not necessarily something she was commissioned to do by, by the other nuns. 
The first chronicler, St. Monica's, opens her narrative by telling us it was written by one of the religious of St. Monica's monastery, and that this history hath been faithfully written upon the relation of the persons themselves concerning their parents and their own coming and calling to holy religion. And for the more surety after the writing, it was again shewed to the same persons that they might see whether all was right written and nothing mistaken. The narrative proper begins with the events of the 1530s and the 1540s, the dissolution of the monasteries, the movement of Catholic families into exile, and the heroic deeds of Sir Thomas More's adopted daughter, Margaret Giggs Clement, the mother of Margaret Clement, who is the first English prioress at Lugan. Following Margaret Clement's biographer, the nun Elizabeth Shirley, the anonymous chronicler claims Giggs Clement as her convent's spiritual mother, sorry, spiritual grandmother, thus placing all of the nuns within the community in a lineage tracing back to Sir Thomas More, who was executed under Henry VIII. The anonymous chronicler emphasizes how Giggs Clement was taught Greek and Latin in More's school, and that she taught her children Greek and Latin as well. And it's important to say for those who don't know, Sir Thomas More was unusual in having tutors drawn from around Europe to teach his children how to read, write, do arithmetic, uh, Greek, Latin, etc., etc., and they were quite advanced. Um, Erasmus dedicated works to them. You know, they, they got a lot of play, shall we say. Um, as Jane Stevenson has noted, the chronicler cites numerous instances of learned Catholic families within the chronicle um, in which the daughters were taught Latin and or Greek and attained a high level of education. And this learnedness is very much a theme of the St. Monica's Chronicle. The pervasiveness of this theme made me wonder whether the author was herself descended from one of these particularly learned families she described. The number of well-educated women praised in the Chronicle made it hard to identify a single plausible author on these grounds alone, but another unrelated part of the narrative helped me to narrow down my list of possible authors. The Siege of Leuven of 1635, which gets about 7,000 words of space, um, is quite clearly narrated by somebody who had lived through it. By using manuscript sources for the Chronicle, as opposed to the 20th century printed edition that has typically been used by other scholars, I discovered a list of names of those nuns who had stayed in Lupin during the siege, and a list of those who had been sent away to Nazareth for safety. So this gave me um, about half the community who were plausible candidates for the author. I then plotted the names of those who stayed using profession and death data from the Who Are the Nuns database in combination with internal textual evidence that places the composition between 1631 and 1660. And from here, I used textual evidence to identify moments when the chronicler spoke about nuns in ways that clearly render them the observed rather than the observer. So take Prioress Magdalena Throckmorton, an otherwise plausible chronicler candidate who is described as follows. Oh, sorry, those are all of the possible nuns being shown in black um, in their dates of profession, and if they're in gray, they didn't hit the right bars, um, so they, they got tossed out. Um, so, the archbishop made her sit down in a chair by him, and we all came one by one and made our vow of obedience unto her as the manner is. After that, we all went to the choir, and she was installed in her place there. So this really left me with only one truly plausible candidate, Mary Copley, a descendant of Margaret Giggs Clement, and thus Thomas More. Under the cloak of anonymity, Copley describes her own education and that of her female forebears in detail, and even delights in recording how her book of Virgil was confiscated during a raid by Protestants the night before she and her sister set sail from London for the convent to make their professions. Copley deployed anonymous authorship in such a way that enabled her to merge important elements of her own life, particularly her links with the Moore family and their interests in women's education, with other individual and familial histories in the Chronicle. Her autobiographical impulses shaped the record of her community, while the Chronicle is, as she claims at the start, a collection of individual reported experiences of recusancy, persecution, exile, martyrdom, conversion, religious vocation, and political activity, as well as a narrative of the nuns' collective convent experiences, Copley gives these diverse stories a narrative coherence by emphasizing women's learnedness. 
This is an ambitious prose narrative of English Catholicism between 1535 and 1660, which attempts to make sense of the nuns' collective exiled present and their distinctive identity and purpose as an English community. Copley's identity and autobiographical impulses are central to this project. The Nazareth Chroniclers, this is the Bruges house, the daughter house, has proved more elusive, but I have a theory about her identity which is firmly bound up with her choice of genre and form. The Chronicle is littered with commentary about the convent's finances, and its author clearly draws on accounts to populate her entries, and that, by that I mean financial accounts. So this is just one example. Um, for the year 1665, um, at the end she lists who the benefactors were, how much money they gave, and what it was used for. And I don't know how well you can see it, but this is the financial accounts which contain the same information. Many annual entries conclude with a statement of the convent's finances, which is somewhat unusual for convent chronicles, and there are about a dozen of these that survive, and very few of them do this ever, if, you know, certainly not every year. Adam Smythe's work on early modern accounting as a form of autobiography, one often underpinned by spiritual self-examination, has been particularly helpful to me in thinking about the identity of this chronicler and the impetus for her text. He writes, when individuals came to write accounts of their lives, the financial account proved one readily available, sorry, provided one readily available template for truthfulness, a template which life writers might appropriate for their own projects. The structures and methods of financial accounting thus underlay many attempts to produce reliable records of the events of the life. In Smythe's examples, including the diaries of Samuel Pepys and the great books of record of Anne Clifford, accounting is a precursor to other forms of life writing. I argue that the Nazareth Chronicle grew from an accounting practice, which was only introduced to Nazareth in 1639, a full 13 years after its foundation, during which time the convent had become so impoverished the nuns had to resort to begging and frequently went hungry. As we shall see, the chronicler was keenly aware of what the early period of financial mismanagement cost her convent, not only materially, but reputationally. She uses the chronicle to explain the mistakes of the Nazareth founders to future generations so that her readers could avoid repeating them. I read the Nazareth chronicle entries for 1629 to 1670 as a subsumed autobiographical act in which the author attempts to account for the convent's initial hardships and to describe what she saw as its salvation by God. She understood her community's survival as God's approbation for their cause, although it needs to be said it kicks in only after a while. Um, the chronicle obituary for the first prioress who died in 1635 states, want of experience in the beginning made her something fail in the well-ordaining of the temporals, towards, uh, which towards the end of her days she perceived and would have amended if life and health had permitted but she grew very infirm. Her, her trials were many and her patience great, having had both the afflictions of war and plague, and we may say in some sort of famine also, through the extreme poverty of the house. The debts of the cloister very much afflicted her. They were also very much her fault. Uh, it doesn't say that. <laughs> Under the second prioress though, things improved. The chronicle obituary of prioress poll says, she was always zealous of regular discipline and exemplar in the observance of order, and both beloved and feared in the community, much respected and beloved by strangers, and with her prudent and affable conversation gained many friends to the cloister, and by this means procured alms wherewith the great poverty of the house was relieved, and by her careful ordaining of the things, expenses were moderated, and before her death all debts paid. Prioress Pole not only attracted alms to the house, she gained permission to beg in the city and diocese of Bruges. And I haven't included this example, but the chronicler describes a conversation between the prioress and um, another person, uh, who's the procuratrix, and we'll come on to that in a moment. They're the only two people in the room, so presumably it's a conversation that was had with her, and she's now writing that down. Um, at first, people didn't believe the nuns were so hard-pressed, but upon seeing and hearing more about their circumstances, aid was forthcoming. 
Prioress Pohl was also instrumental in correcting the previous financial disaster by bringing her niece to Nazareth from St. Monica's and positioning her for election to a new role called the Arcaria, which worked closely with the prioress and procuratrix on convent finances. Some weeks after her arrival at Nazareth, our Reverend Mother Pohl sent for the archpriest to make the convent's voices for an Arcaria. Hitherto, we had not any. Sister Augustine Benningfield was chosen Arcaria, and she this year drew out the procuratrice's rec reckoning after the form used at St. Monica's. This reckoning of our house was 1639, and it is the first that remains recorded in our convent. Um, and a copy of those accounts survives in Nazareth to this day, and confirms that there was a transmission of accounting knowledge between houses. I believe that the institution of these new accounting practices gave rise to the chronicle itself, and that the chronicler was a financial officer who drew inspiration from said accounting practice. Can you sing Uh, the chronicling describes in detail how the convent's financial outlook changed under the management of Prioress Pohl and her niece, Augustina Bettingfield, who is this new Arcaria, who succeeded her aunt as Prioress in 1640. The description of Bettingfield's installation as Prioress signals how her election changed the convent's fortunes. So I'm not going to read this in detail, but the important part is um, italicized, so I've added that emphasis. <laughs> Um, and she's talking about how when the convent is given, um, sorry, when, when the new abbess is installed, uh, she's given um, money and attention that was out of the common way for that convent to that date. So they get sent wine, they're allowed to have people come into the convent, which is a very special big deal, you need to have dispensation to do that. Um, and then that puts them on an even footing with other Flemish convents in the town who by being Flemish already have a bit more interest in the hearts of the locals than these random English people who have showed up not that long ago. Prior's Fettingfield's appointment coincides with a distinct shift in tone within the Bruges Chronicle, or the Nazareth Chronicler, and as if her election marked the community or the chronicler's new sense of worth and value in the eyes of benefactors and locals. As we see, the chronicler understands Fettingfield's status and treatment as a sign from God, it is evident that Nazareth profited by having a leader considered to be a person of quality, placing her in Nazareth on a par with worthy abbesses of richer cloisters. The chronicler later describes Bedingfield in her obituary passage as our foundress in terms of temporals, and much more for spirituals, in which she was truly zealous to advance all, both by word and example. Bedingfield would be a plausible chronicler candidate, but she died in 1661, nine years before a distinct shift in tone in the book, which seems to mark an authorship boundary. So who was the chronicler if not Bedingfield? My best guess is Grace Constable, procuratrix, arcaria, sub-prioress, and almost prioress. She was elected unanimously in 1635, but was not appointed by the bishop because she was too young, according to Tridentine regulations, a big reforming regulation of the Catholic Church. Instead, she was appointed procuratrix, or procuratress, a role with huge financial responsibility and answerable to the prioress. The argument for constable as chronicler is primarily that the text was written by someone who was at the convent from the beginning, and could have filled in the financial backstory even without the formal written accounts, of which we know there were none before 1639. Only a small number of women would have had access to money or financial information, and Constable is the only post holder alive in 1640 and 1670, who was present at Nazareth from the beginning. Constable, who learned a proper system of accounting from Bedingfield, and who served alongside her as procuratrix, arcaria, and subprioress, is a likely author of the phrase, our foundress in terms of temporals, and the person whose financial experiences are most likely to have given rise to a chronicle so peppered with pecuniary details. I read the chronicle as Constable's subsumed autobiography, capturing the poignant experience of a woman who saw her convent suffer hardship, particularly as a result of Prioress Stamford's and her own inexperience as financial managers, and who later reveled in her convent's redemption through the acumen of Prioress's pole in Bedingfield. This chronicle grows out of the accounting practices that Constable learned from Bedingfield in 1639, and clearly reveals the ways in which accounting could underlie not only first-person autobiographical works, 
but also anonymous third-person narratives. These two case studies demonstrate that although author nuns were more constrained in what they could write than their secular peers, these constraints gave rise to complex strategies of self-expression. I'm always struck by how very different these sister houses are in their literary production. St. Monica's creating a, a chronicle with a large historical and temporal scope, and Nazareth producing a document that attempts to explain the mistakes of the past and avoid them in the future. When studying anonymous convent literature, we must continually ask ourselves, who might have had the means, interest, or capacity to represent events in a particular manner? These questions may lead us to better understand not only the autobiographical impulses of an individual, but also how and why she came to be an authoritative voice for her community. Chronicles are one of the most important convent genres, and even in the chaos of the French Revolution, when most English communities fled the continent and returned to England, they managed to, sne to sneak these documents out with them and cherish them to this day. These case studies form part of my forthcoming book on convent autobiography, but I believe they have wider implications for early modern studies and the study of authorial and autobiographical strategies in other periods. Although anonymity is an important and complex literary strategy, there is value in asking how an anonymous text came into being and who might have been motivated to undertake it. So I'll conclude with some questions for what I believe is a varied group here tonight coming from a variety of disciplines and periods. How do marginalized or consciously self-effacing writers imbue narratives or institutional documents with their own experiences of selfhood? How are seemingly banal or impersonal forms such as chronicles or accounts harnessed for subsumed self-expression? How might this concept be fruitful in your own work? And I'd love to hear more from you. Thanks. multinational yeah, you know, individuals and makeups, and they were certainly Latinate enough to be able to yeah. sing the order and understand what they were reading and singing. Um, but because some of these documents were read out to the whole convent and the whole, not everybody was Latinate, um, so there were lay nuns who were sort of more like servants um, than, than those who were responsible for singing the order every day, um, they would you know, want to hear the document, and so English would be would be a more natural choice in that respect. Do we see any more uh, other self-subsumed literature in the rest of men in the church also, or is it mostly in female? I think that we probably do in the medieval period more. Um, the men uh, who are setting up English foundations at this point are uh, mostly not keeping chronicles, and they also are not enclosed anymore, which I think has a bearing on this to some extent. So these women are enclosed. You go in this convent, you never come out, except in extreme circumstances like the Siege of Leuven. Um, so the men, we have a lot of documents from men that are, that are clearly authored by them, um, and they used... I think they're writing more to gain preferment and to uh, gain control of communities as well. So, you know, where they would be sent to do their work um, would be based in large part on their, their writing ability and their ability to communicate, um, you know, religious ideas. So, and they were often 
engaged in scholarly debate, so there isn't a lot that I found. But it's also this idea of like where, like in the first example that you showed, this um, being humble in the writing and not maybe referring to I, but you know, is not so present so much in the writing of the man. I don't find that, no. And there are actually, I mean, I, sh I probably shouldn't say this, but there's a really interesting project studying the Benedictines, who are the largest. Uh, order of monks in the period, English monks in the period, and they are constantly getting into trouble and being really awful, and the nuns, in comparison, are just marvelously well-behaved. Um, I mean, they have some spats, but, like, the monks are marrying women in order to convert them to Catholicism, and you're like, I'm pretty sure that's not part of your brief, um, and things like that, and there's a lot more fighting, <laughs> so, yeah. have come to see it as a very deliberate act. I thought it was just um, part of the form and you know part of the genre or part of, of being a nun is that you would do this. So but I found a number of cases where women like like Neville are writing in their own voice and the constraints that that places on her as um, you know when she is commenting on on points of um, rupture within her community and things like that. I think she's more constrained in what she can say. And I see other um, later chroniclers at Bruges who uh, are writing anonymously, and they're probably known to their successors and, and so on, but they, they get lost over time. And they take control of the narrative events that happen in their community, I think, with great glee. So they know that they're writing. So let's say there's a, you know, a dispute over what kind of veil they should wear, whether they should build a school, which which happens in the 1720s. Um, one of the nuns, is, or the, that that prioress nun who's writing, can um, give her version of the events without saying that. I think she's very conscious that she's doing that. Um, at one point, a nun who opposed her dies in the process of the dispute, and she frames that as God having happened with God's approbation, and it, that's quite cold, you know, that's, that's quite, um, and I, yeah, so, so I think she is very much using this vehicle self-consciously, um, but whether they would have, I think if I sat down with them, you know, 400 years ago and said, I think what you're doing is autobiographical, first of all, they'd say, what is that, and second of all, I think they would say, no, no, I'm just recording my you know, how, how it is, and, and this is a group effort, but I think it's often not. Um, and, it, you know, it's the only place that I'm aware of that you can really talk about yourself. When they're writing letters to their family, those are read by priests and their prioresses. There's not a lot of privacy. So ironically, in this extremely public document, um, you can embed yourself um, in a way. So, yes, that was a very rambling answer. Question. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the sort of formal or stylistic qualities of this writing. Does it um, is it sort of in keeping with what prose was like in general in this period? Or I don't know. I was like, struck by Michelin's definition of autobiography as retrospective prose narrative. I was wondering how prosaic is it? Are there moments of poetry? Um, I think that there is more so in the Chronicle of St. Monica's. I mean, that really has, I, I think, quite a literary ambition. Um, and you do see, I mean, there are certain phrases or certain kind of descriptions of nuns or the heroism of, of family members, which is a bit formulaic, and you would find it in um, Saints' Lives, <coughs> Martyrologies, and, and things like that. Um, but there is, you know, there is some individual sounding turn of phrase. I was just reading another chronicle recently for the Poor Clares, um, where the writer is describing her community's move from to, to found a new house, and they have to go through all these cities, and they're often, you know, there's a no room in the inn kind of situation going on through this narrative. Um, and her description of inns, I, I haven't come across this before, she's describing them as sluttish, 
you know, like filthy, disgusting places, and she really has a turn of phrase um, for describing her, her displeasure. So I think that there is some, uh, you know, keeping with, with tradition and, and genres, so to speak, but there is a huge amount of flexibility as well, and, and a lot of color in the narrative um, from time to time. Poetry, maybe not, but color, definitely. Question: How does this develop? Uh, this autobiography later on in later years is it still like, other, still very interesting cases, or is this for some reasons the most interesting period to look at? Um, well, in terms of period, I think that this is happening much earlier. Um, we've lost uh, in the English case a lot of the you know not all of them, but a lot of chronicles um, from from monasteries have been lost during the dissolution. Um, but you do find this kind of writing in other convents, so Portuguese and Flemish and, and so on. Um, the further, and I, and I should say I was a medievalist by training, and, and so I'm not doing one of those like, oh, the past is not as good as my period or, or something like that. But um, in the chronicles I found from the medieval periods, a sort of 14th century, 15th, um, there's a bit more of a formulaic approach to describing the virtues of a particular individual, mm -hmm. and that when it is then scaled up, it does feel a little, a little bit repetitive. Um, that's not quite answering your question. Sorry. No, no, it does. Yeah. And so, and then later on, how does this kind of develop? Um, so different, just within this one community, the the Nazareth community. Um, I think the Chronicle gets used to express personal views um, and, and to describe uh, usually. So it goes from being written by somebody who's not the head of the community, not the most senior woman, but certainly high up. And then it seems to be kept by the prioress going forward, and it is now to this day also kept by the prioress. So um, it becomes, I think, a, a way in which the prioress can articulate her power and articulate her view of what has happened in her community, and it becomes really important for that. Um, but when they started, they seem to have been the impulse of women who, who just fancied taking on the task. Um, so it wasn't necessarily explicitly bound up with their power uh, as such, or their power as the leader of the community. But I think there, I think that they're still probably used in this way today. Um, if you, if you're the record keeper in a community where you, you know, have taken a, a vow of humility and you're um, giving up a lot of your rights, really, as an individual, um, this is a un almost a unique place where you can articulate your view of something, but without having to really say that it's your view. After now, hearing both papers uh, that is coming out, uh, um, trying to bring it together. I want to ask, yes. I, I feel there's a thread between my papers in terms of women presenting themselves as a question of humility and seduction. In the poems you looked at, this is confidence and this I am beautiful, I will convert everyone to my religion. But your text, as we were saying, this is imposed humility, but then on the other hand, the prioresses but make it work and the convents attract more attention. They are savvy in how in seduction would be a strong word, but they're more aware of the dynamics and how to deal with other people. So I was wondering if you could both talk about the balance between sort of humility but also being more outgoing and seductive and how that relates to religion. <laughs> Well, I guess the first thing I thought of was that moment where the prior, the second prioress at Nazareth yeah. decides that it's time to beg yeah. in the town, because that is actually like forbidden at uh -huh. a serious no-no. So they are, they are kind of having to seduce their um, townsmen and say, you know, we are these poor ladies and give us, give us alms, give us bread, give us firewood. And they succeed. And um, I think that they're able to 
kind of act, you know, they're using their, their identity in a powerful way in that sense, but there is a, you know, damsel in distress sort of situation going on there, real damsels in distress, it's not, it's not fake, but um, I think that they're using uh, perceptions of, mm -hmm. of womanhood and, and yeah. convent life very uh -huh. consciously to, to be helped out. Do they describe themselves doing that? Kind of how they went about this process of begging? Yeah, yeah. How they formulated the image of a nun in distress that if they were both appeal and kind of... Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lengthy description of how um, the not the, again, another no, no, you're not supposed to leave the convent. She goes out into the streets, literally begging, and, and this happens at uh, St. Monica's at an earlier period of, of poverty. Um, and they are described in detail, and it's almost a bit of a template for should you have to do this in future, yeah. I think. <laughs> so, you know, and it's like how she comported herself, yeah. um, how she dressed. Some of them don't go dressed as nuns, some of them do go dressed as nuns. It's very interesting. Yeah. That is interesting. <laughs> um, I don't. I think. I mean, we see. We clearly you see the link with the seduction in the poetry of Tahira and, and conversion, but I think it's it's all used as a means to to further that message that she's trying to you know that that she that she has upheld basically, and I think in in up I mean. I don't know if I'm really answering your question, but I think, like in who in, in how she is behaving, even in her poetry, there is that element of humility, or in the sense that this is this is something I think is interesting about her is that this is something much greater than her. She's just she's a part of this of what she's accepted to you know be this new religion, um, and so it's not just about her, but but she's using so there is that humility of her in there as just like a pawn in this play of God that she believes, you know, maybe think the case, but that she is there for, but then she has this power at the same time to use, um, and I, I mean, I don't think actually there was any, like, seduction being used, it's, it's a trope in the poetry to use it as she's to, uh, going back into what her predecessors were doing, sort of, um, but that that's it's there and it's open to her and that's where her authority lies is in her beauty and in and like I was saying that her beauty is more symbolic and it's like obviously it's funny because the the court historians of the Hajars talk about these are people writing about her in a negative sense you know talking about how calling her like all these names and saying she does X Y and Z which is all against the religion but they all talk about how beautiful she is at the same time. How beautiful she is, and what a how knowledgeable she is in in the study of the religion. So it's interesting to see her play with that to some extent too. But I think it's it's there's a balance between the humility aspect of it because she doesn't see herself. This isn't about her. It's about this greater cause that she's given her voice to, but using whatever means she has to make it move forward. And I hope that helps. Something that I mean, it's not we're not formulating it as a as a question. It's more of our thought. Is that you were mentioning that Tyre's work is still now received as something radical, right? And I'm wondering now, after thinking about this, how is I mean the these autobiographies, mm -hmm. these accounts, these writings uh, were not perceived as radical, but somehow are a radical way of writing uh, and an interesting way to. Uh, to self-expression, so I'm, I'm wondering if you, uh, if you see an element of radicality in, in your, uh, in these writings as well, what would you say? Um, yeah, I, so when I first started uh, working with convent materials, I was reading family letters and I thought, aha, the one moment where these women are writing, you know, their one letter a year is where they're going to so say, <laughs> this is where the good stuff is going to be. And then, I, and I didn't look at the chronicles, and then when I started to read them, I thought, I'm getting more about this individual, whoever she is, than I would get if I could read all of her letters home. So I think that there is, if not a radical, then certainly an unusual degree of self-expression that's allowed. Um, 
and nobody would comment and say, you know, how dare you write about your family for 8,000 words, you know, which she does. Um, or, you know, how dare you criticize the first prioress, you know. So I think there are radical elements of self-expression in there. Um, and that unlike their married counterparts, nuns generally, particularly the powerful ones who were, you know, the, the top sort of office holders in the convents, had a degree of control over their finances, over their daily lives, over what they ate, over, you know, medical treatment, all of these things that in a domestic setting really would have been um, subjected to male authority more regularly on a daily basis. The nuns, they'd have a visit from a male, um, you know, prelate or archbishop or somebody, you know, like a couple of times a year, and then they just sort of got on with it on their own. So I think, you know, we can find some very, um, if not radical, uh, you know, yes, we can find radical women in convents, and I think we can certainly find very tough women who are doing their own thing, too. And regarding Therese, as she had always been, I mean, the reception was always, okay, this is quite radical, or was there a development? Was, um... No, I think generally her, her reception has been radical from the very beginning, basically. I mean, you see her as, um, as a woman who leaves her, fa her husband and her children to go after, you know, this new religion that she's upheld. Um, that in itself, I think, is huge. And then, you know, everything else that follows, the unveiling and the, <laughs> everything else. Even her, even writing, in a sense, and composing is radical to some extent um, for women of that time. Um, but in her poetry, uh, you s definitely see specific elements of it, too. And they're not these ones that we looked at, but like I was mentioning, there are a lot of poems that are very revolutionary in some senses. Like she has one poem where she says, it's very fascinating, she says, <clears throat> because you know that this idea for the Babis was that it's a new religion, right? And that the laws of Islam were to be broken, it's the, that Islam is done basically, and that the Babi faith is this new religion for the time, for the world. And so she says like, you know, um, it's the time of the sheikhs and the, the clergymen has ended, you should cut the she says rishay tahtul hunak as dam. So the tahtul hunak is the is the um, the turban that the imams would wear, and she's saying you should need to cut it at the root. You know, so it's like these are really it is quite radical, and uh, it makes sense to some extent why it's not. You know, but I mean even like for example, one of her Tahrir's signature poem is this ghazal, um, and so it's a love poem, and if you read it by itself, it has no really religious background to it. But even that in Iran is oftentimes sung in public places, but then it's not attributed to her. Or the last line where she uses her takhallus, where she makes mention of herself in the mm -hmm. poem, is cut out, for example. Mm -hmm. So yeah. So next we go from yeah, authors who didn't write their names to someone with a name, but then and then they take it out. Exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> yes. Thank you. Uh, there are no other questions. Uh, and our pastoral power is very much focused on the subject. 
themselves and uh, probing their desires, their thoughts. And I was wondering if it, maybe this way in which Chronicles is actually because they focus on this collective level, somehow avoids this, this uh, how do you call it, like, immigrating and, and disciplinary force. Um, so, I mean, the letters—they are—they are individual. They're from an individual to her family, or you know, a friend <coughs> at the convent. And usually, you're absolutely right. There's an economic uh, link there. Um, sometimes, though, her identity is so bound up with just talking about community life. You know, we this year did X, Y, and Z, and these things happened to us. Um, and so clear individual doesn't really emerge you know we know it's written by an individual but the the self is so firmly embedded within the community narrative um, and then for contrast in the chronicles so there are a couple of things in your in your question about sort of who is the audience um, for these and I think actually our evidence for that is quite sketchy so some scholars have said that these narratives were read every year, and I think that's based on some chronicles that some convents were read every year to the whole convent. Um, sometimes you see annotating hands from later generations that can be positively ascribed to particular individuals, and you can see why they're going back or what they're gravitating towards. Um, you can see that later people have cut pages out and put pages in, that's always fun. Um, so there are there are various layers of reading. I think there is an oral tradition, and I think there's also a, a, a reading going on. You know um, that, that yeah can have a, a written imprint. Um, and for the authors who who are setting out, particularly the first women who are making a lot of decisions about genre that then affect their um, their the next writers, I think. They have all sorts of goals. For some, it's capturing this large collective history which you, you mentioned. Um, and for others, it's, I think, trying to warn people in the future. So for St. Monica's, I think there's a celebration of this is where we've come from. These are our family members. You know, we're um, a convent worth joining. I think that one was probably intended to be read by others outside the community. Um, and. Not and I, I don't think the author wanted to advertise her place as the author. I think she was just saying at the beginning, you know, I've I've collected these almost saying I'm a scribe, which she's clearly not just a scribe. Um, and then I think the second author, there's no preamble of that nature. She just gets into the narrative, and it's it's sort of we were founded in this year, and we did these things, and we got into financial trouble, and um, so I think her her anxiety is expressing itself in the text, which is why I think she's traceable. And, and she's traceable in a very different way, I think for very different impulses than that first author. So there, there are all sorts of different selves and modes of self-expression, um, if, if that makes sense.